Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Poetry, where we interview both emerging and established poets about their new work. I'm very excited to be joined by Samuel Amidon. Today we will discuss his newest collection of poems, the Hartford book, published by Cleveland State University Poetry Center. In these poems, we meet a speaker behaving very badly, and it's scary. The poems, written in a streetwise vernacular, are honest to the point of humiliation and despair, full of rhetorical and formal mania. Every poem is like a shot of whiskey and getting your nose broken at the same time. The Hartford book is a journey to the underworld where the slum and street corner is enchanted and there's only one outlaw that seems remotely aware of an alternative path, a path that leads straight out of Hartford. Richard Howard says, Our poetry will never be the same now that Amidon has spoken. Samuel Amidon, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Hi, John. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for uh, joining us. Before we get into the book, and uh, the book is just amazing, and uh, it really spoke to me on so many levels. But before we get there, uh, I want to kind of talk about your background, where you came from. So if you could tell us where uh, you were born, raised, and where you grew up. Uh, well, I, I was born in Hartford, um, which if you if you read the book, I, <laughs> I mentioned the hospital I'm born in a few times. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I was born in Hartford. Uh, I grew up um, in in West Hartford, uh, Connecticut, and um, uh, I uh, I went to college in Boston, um, and uh, and then eventually I went to grad school in New York. Yep. And after you went to grad school, you went to the University of Houston. Is that right? Yeah, I uh, I did a PhD at the University of Houston, and now I'm teaching in the MFA program at the University of South Carolina. So now I live in Columbia, South Carolina. So if I were to draw a line on a map, you went from Hartford to Boston to New York to Houston and now South Carolina? Yeah. And how are you adjusting to your, uh, your new home in uh, South Carolina? Well, it's actually like uh, it's sort of a similar size city to Hartford. Uh, it's different. People mm-hmm. are like friendly. Um, like for instance, like we pulled up in the middle of the night um, with a U-Haul, and my neighbor just started helping us unload our stuff into our house, which is not the sort of thing that happens in Hartford. Um, but yeah, I like it a lot. Um, and I've got like a, I've got my own MFA students now, and I really like them, and uh, things are going well. Yeah, tell me real quick. Uh... Tell me real quick what, how you would distinguish your experience in um, the MFA program compared to the PhD program. Oh, um, well, they were they were like uh, such different types of programs. Uh, Columbia, um, the MFA is the, uh, all writers teaching you all the time, and um, a PhD program. I was working with scholars and and in workshop and teaching which I didn't do at Columbia. Um, 
teaching a, a fairly heavy teaching load, and so I was much busier at, in the PhD. I guess like the the big difference in terms of creative writing um, is that I sort of I had I had published a book or I published a book my first year in my PhD. Um, and I sort of thought that was going to happen. And I was at a point where I was like, okay, I, I've gotten something out of workshop. Now let's think about like, what is workshop? I want to teach workshop eventually. And so it, it, the PhD um, for me was really about like figuring out how to teach um, creative writing. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what do you think uh, is the most challenging thing for you anyway, or the thing that you kind of, value the most that you learned about kind of running a workshop. I mean, these students are bringing it and they're kind of looking to you as an authority figure in the classroom. Uh, what's that dynamic like? Well, I, I really think that, um, that, that one like thing that the workshop should be is the best possible audience for the poems that people are writing. I think like when, um, when you have a reader who, gets excited about your work and gets and is really reading it in a way that you're not going to get readers, you know, elsewhere to read with that like level of intensity. Um that that like that draws out great work from people. And so my workshop is really about description first and then we move into like talking about what to do next with the poem or other kinds of poems that we want to see from people. Um, but rather than being like, well, I don't like what you're doing or I'm not going to read too far into this. Like, I think it's, it's really about being like the best possible audience. Um, because the, once we're done with our MFAs, uh, then we end up floating around in this poetry world where you kind of dip into books and, you know, you see people at readings and sometimes you're listening and sometimes you're not. And, uh, so I think it's like, it can be like a really special thing. It was for me, um, at Columbia. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to kind of segue uh, to your book, the Hartford book, <clears throat> and I want you to kind of talk about the genesis of these poems, uh, when they were written, when were they called together for a manuscript, kind of just their lifespan. Can you tell us about where the poems came from uh, and how they came together to finally form a manuscript? Well, I uh, I I actually wrote the Hartford book prior to Legacy, um, and it just it, it had like a, a longer journey <laughs> to becoming like a publishable book. But um, I wrote I, I had written maybe one poem prior to going to Columbia, and then my first semester I was in workshop with Richard Howard, who uh, doesn't actually like lead a workshop, and instead um, has us to his apartment and to bring bring him like three or four poems whenever you have them. And so I brought him uh, a few poems and one of them was uh, Wells, the like early poem from the Hartford book. And, uh, and he really loved it. And he like sort of showed me some things to do with it. And, and it became like, he wanted to see more of these things. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, I can write poems this way. I can like, I can just uh, have this like voice and I can write about Hartford and, um, and so during the next six month period, I wrote the majority of the book. Um, I also wrote like a, a second book's worth of poems that, that aren't in here anymore. And, um, and just going week by week and bringing them to this person who was like thanking me for bringing him poems. Uh, it was unbelievable. And so anyway, I ended up with, uh, with an enormous manuscript. Um, and, and, uh, over time, uh, I went through 
like probably like four or five different revisions and it mostly mostly the revision was removing things and so I cut poems out um I cut things out of poems I I figured out things that like I thought I thought were really like funny when I had written them initially and then they they sort of didn't last and um and I guess like the biggest challenge was that these poems seem really natural. They have that like that feel. People like keep describing the book as, as being really honest. Um and and I think that like that made it sort of hard to tell which ones were just me talking about something and which ones were were uh um doing something more than that. And so uh like two years ago, um I came up with the a final draft of it and uh and Cleveland State liked it and and then we like worked on it some together and ended up finally with this book out in the world. Yes, uh, it is so fantastic. And something you said made me think that uh that moment you had where you were like, I can write poems like this, like, oh my God. To get such permission to kind of find that voice, were you uh was there before you got that kind of validation like, hey Sam, you can write these poems, it's okay. Before you got that, were you kinda of like tentative or hesitant to get poems of this kind of sort out there? Um because they are. They're they're in an extremely natural voice and they're written in a way that is sometimes I think when the poet is is crafting these poems, they kind of their heads populated by a million choices. And it seems that you and these poems decided to toss all those possibilities out and just to be yourself. So was there any fear or trepidation in kind of writing these poems before you kind of got a green light from other people? Um, well, I think I, I think I figured it out at that time. I mean, part of the, part of the thing is that, uh, I had a hard time getting into an MFA program. And so I had been rejected for like a year by uh, uh, 11 programs. And then I had applied again and to like 16. And so I, I was really like trying to figure out like, how do I do this <laughs> in a way so that, uh, you know, I can <laughs> get out of Hartford. <laughs> and um, and so uh, uh, like the moment when I was writing those, um, I was like, I was feeling really excited because I was finally like in, in a program. And then, um, and so it was, it was like, I figured out how to do it while I was doing it. Um, I think, uh, I think in terms of like what I did with the poems, I, I had to, um, I give a, I was on a panel recently. We were talking about, um, the vernacular. Uh, I was on it because of the Hartford book. And, and so I was thinking about like, why are why do these poems feel that way? Why do people say that they're honest? And I think that, I think that what I did was I just didn't put things in, you know? So it's interesting that you say that, that there are all these choices and it's kind of like, I, I just didn't make any of those. Choices. <laughs> uh, prior to that, I think I had an idea of what a poem was that is the kind of idea that you get from being in Barnes and Noble uh, in like 1997 or yes. something, you know? Um, and so I was like looking for, you know, met, metaphors, um, slowness, and just like doing a voice that wasn't mine. Um, mm-hmm. no, definitely. Uh, uh, something that you said reminded me to ask you about these poems is that there's never this moment and, uh, kind of the, the bow on top of the present moment in your poems and that there isn't, you're never looking to the reader 
either to ask the reader to forgive you for what you're describing. And also, there is never this moment of hard-earned wisdom, which I find incredibly refreshing, that the poems just kind of invited the reader to get on board. I'm going to be as accurate as possible. Many times in the poem, the speaker seems to be saying, I don't know something. And the word something appears all the time. So there's this kind of, uh, this kind of deference to vagueness that I found so refreshing. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think like, part of the thing is that a lot of these poems came out of just, just the stories I would tell over and over again, you know? Um, and so because of that, there's not necessarily like a nugget of wisdom when, when you're just trying to like, entertain a couple of people. Um, I think, uh, I, 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 I didn't like consciously plan to like not ask for forgiveness, <laughs> but, um, but I do, I do like, I do see that, that, that that's like part of the way that the, the book gets away with like doing what it's doing is, is by just doing it. Um, it, you're right. Not, not asking like permission to do it and not like, um, not coming up with like a, an out, um, you know, that I'm, that I'm like implicated in them. Exactly. The, the speaker and the, and it's, and this is a hard book to sit there and talk about this distinguished kind of speaker, poet, you, Samuel Amidon, but I, so I'm often tempted to say you to speak about the speaker and we get in that later, but this speaker seems utterly unaware of the reader at times. And then it creates the intimacy of, I mean, I don't want to sound, it sounds too academic to say voyeurism, but the reader does feel kind of safe watching the poet kind of meander through these extraordinary experiences. Um, so I think you, I think that's one of the book's greatest achievements is that the speaker seems completely unaware of the reader. And on that note, I was hoping we could uh, go ahead and, kind of introduce our listeners to one of the poems and i was hoping you could read um asylum avenue and um uh, before you read asylum avenue can you tell us a little bit about asylum avenue and uh and yeah just tell us kind of paint a picture of uh what that avenue means to you and and then go ahead and uh read the poem um yeah, so, uh, well, I wrote this poem. Uh, at some point, I, I wrote four poems that are named after different streets in Hartford. Um, and that was, like, like, I thought, like, okay, I need to do, you know, this is something that'll be, like, some kind of physical structure for the book. And Asylum Avenue was the first one. Um, I, I always like that, that there's this street called Asylum Avenue, um, you know. <laughs> In Hartford, uh, it, it, I mean, it's named that because of the, the school for the deaf, um, the first school for the deaf. It was, was initially in Hartford. It's now in West Hartford. Um, Asylum Avenue, I'm trying to, I don't know how exactly to describe what that road, I mean, it's, it, it's one of these like major, uh, avenues running like in and out of Hartford. Um, it's, I, I believe it's a street that like at one point in the day, it's one way at another point in the day, it's one way. Um, because it's a, it's the kind of street that like everyone is just driving in to get into the insurance companies and then driving out to get the hell out of Hartford, um, at night. Um, I guess it, 
uh, it is on uh, Stevens's walk. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there are uh, there are um, uh, sections of thirteen ways of looking at a blackbird on, on it now. Um, yes, but yeah. Um, should I should I read it? Yeah, let's have it. Okay, Asylum Avenue. My mother says Asylum Avenue is the wrong place to start because the neighborhood's still too nice, which makes me think my mother hasn't been paying attention and doesn't know what drug dealers look like and hasn't walked home on Asylum from downtown at 2 a.m. so drunk she fell down every time she came across a curb while dragging with her the crackhead who started to shake her hand three blocks back and won't stop. Or maybe she just hasn't learned nothing in Hartford is what it used to be or where it used to be, like the asylum asylum was named for isn't even in Hartford anymore and was actually a school for the deaf and never had any crazy people in it, unlike Hartford, where I can say I've lived a long time and I've known a lot of different people and not one of them is even a little bit sane. So if I was smart, I would watch what I said about them, but I'm not smart. And like everyone else in Hartford, I really don't give a shit. Who would, after all these years of who knows how much crap we've walked through, like me in that hospital on asylum where I was born two months early and probably should have died but didn't, which makes me feel a little like my friend Brad died once because he's a diabetic and drank too much. And when the EMT brought him back, he punched the guy in the face and kept drinking and hasn't died again as far as I know. But what the hell do I know? I'm gone and not going back. And the only time now I come across the word Hartford is when I look it up on the internet to see who Colt and Clemens used to be before they became apartment complexes. Or Adrian, the Dutch captain who's just gotten a development named after him because he landed here and started this shit. But I guess now he's been dead long enough that he'll never have to answer for it, which makes him like us because we never own up to much more than being from Hartford, which is something no one from Hartford would ever deny because though we're all fucked, we've all been fucked before and for so long that unlike the rest of you, we'd have to be crazy not to know by now what to expect next. Damn, thanks. That was great. You know, the first time I read your book <clears throat> and really got into the content of it, one of my first impulses was to hang it from my rearview mirror in the car and, like, drive to Hartford and drive around that city. It was such a ruthless book. Um, and it made me think of Hartford so much. Uh, because when I travel north, I take the Merritt Parkway, and I know I always feel Hartford approaching, but like many people, I think, uh, you know, we just kind of fly by it. And now that you've had some remove from Hartford, is it, how do you uh, connect with that city now? Well, uh, at this point, a lot of people I know just aren't there anymore. A lot of people's like parents moved away. Mm -hmm. uh, so, oh, you know, if I go back, I go back to, to see my parents and I, um, I don't know, I kind of go around by myself a bit. Um, I haven't had, in a few years now, I haven't, I haven't like ended up back there. Um, and there aren't, yeah, there aren't really many people that like, uh, that I should run into yeah. <laughs> if I do go back there. And so, um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I love it. You know, I, I love Hartford. Um, 
uh, and I, I love going back there. And, you know, if I, um, I don't know, I, I still feel like the same enthusiasm for it and for all its like shittiness that, that I always did. <laughs> um, uh, I, I guess, uh, I guess I just don't, I don't really see any any way that I'll ever like really be like deeply involved in it again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was totally thinking that. Um, in that poem, you mentioned uh, your mother right off the bat, and I was thinking about this book, you know, and I was like, you know, wow, I'm gonna send this to my parents, you know. Uh, can you tell me uh, at all, like, were you worried about uh, family members' reactions to this, or? Did they pretty much know your biography inside and out, and so this was not any sort of a shocking material to them? Uh, well, they knew these poems inside and out as I was writing them. I mean, uh, my parents were, were like excited about my poems, uh, and they liked this book a lot. Um, there's actually like a, a YouTube video my dad did of me reading Wells um, with like some pictures he took. Uh, so by the time the book was coming out, I mean, I guess like initially I had some trepidation about the kinds of things I was putting in there. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, no, they, they're, they're like fully behind it. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think my like 95 year old grandmother would like it, but <laughs> <laughs> you, you do, you don't read you know, your when you visit her. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've got a copy with a smaller font. And so I, I think, um, you know, if, if she ever wants one, I'll probably give her that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I was kind of struck by the cast of characters in this book. Uh, almost every poem, uh, people emerge um, mysteriously, enter and exit the poems. Can you kind of tell me about the social arrangement with these individuals? That they were, it sounded like they were simultaneously like amazing friends, but the speaker seems to be a little more aware of what's going on than them. I don't know if that's a misreading of it, but that the very generation of these poems, that the fact that they exist seem to speak of kind of a, a person who is participating in the behavior that they're participating in while simultaneously being able to kind of take a mature look or that there was always kind of this idea that this is temporary. I'm not going to live this lifestyle forever where the people in the poem seem quite wed to this lifestyle. Can you kind of talk about that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I was sort of floating in and out a lot. Um, and I, and I wanted to do like this to, to write poems. Um, I wasn't like writing poems while, <laughs> while I was doing this. I mean, while I was like living with them. Um, but uh, uh, for instance, like my, at some point, it became necessary to prove to the landlord that I didn't live in the house because we were behind on rent and mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and I wasn't on the lease. Um, and we just showed him my room, and that was like sufficient proof because yeah. <laughs> like it wasn't like it wasn't like gross or anything. It just looked yeah. like no one lived there. Um, and so uh, I think like I you know during this time I I, I went to the Breadloaf Writers Conference every summer um and and so i i had like kind of like an eye out for like oh this this exists there's this like this other world i might end up in you know that i'm trying to end up in and 
Um, and so I think that probably gave me, you know, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of perspective. I don't know. Maybe, um, I mean, I think like w- what you're saying is very, is very true about like what, what the voice is doing. And really it's, it's true about like what my experience of, uh, of those years was like, um, I don't know. It, it, it's sort of, maybe that's something that, that being a poet is, is like, you know, that you have, like being, like being a poet gives you that, um, kind of, uh, You've, you've got like a foot into some sort of perspective, you know? I, don't I know. think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, because most of the friends in the book, uh, you know, they, they're not like a kind of what I'd imagine, like say a poet would hang out with. Right. Uh, uh-huh. but at the same time, they seem like the perfect poet for, a, I mean, the perfect friends for a poet to kind of hide out in. Um, I just found that really, really, uh, remarkable that, you know, you're, there's clearly people in here that aren't connected to the poetry world, whatever, but yeah, I mean, it's just uh, amazing that you kind of, or that the speaker survived this. And I want to get to that in a way, what drew you or drew the speaker to this lifestyle after you, one has many choices and you, the poems describe it a world that is populated by a lot of self-destruction and a lot of confusion and also poems in which even physical property seems to be in danger at all times. I'm wondering if you could speak to what is, what is captivating about that and what maybe this speaker is attracted to in that world. And, and I think a lot of people who experience similar similar experiences are they're drawn to uh something that maybe we can't put our finger on but i was wondering if you could try yeah um yeah it's interesting i i mean i think part of it is hartford uh that this is sort of like just what it's like there um in that there's not really there's not really a lot to do it's not very big um I, i was actually like i was looking recently and like Hartford County, the like big swath of Connecticut that uh, that, that Hartford's at the center of is essentially like the size of Houston, right. <laughs> the city, you know. And so it, it's sort of this small place that is kind of like um, you can sort of you can be this way there. Um, you can, and I don't know. Like for instance, there's one person who. Because we were all working in these bars, um, we got to know the like minor league hockey players, and and there was one person who had like gone up to the NHL and had blown out his knee and had taken the insurance on his leg, um, which meant he couldn't play hockey anymore. And he like he like just broke things in our apartment. Or like one day, I was walking around with um, my old car stereo, and uh, and he was like sitting on a stool at, this is the middle of the day uh and he was sitting on a stool like carting people to leave a bar that he yeah. didn't work at he didn't work anywhere wow and and i like handed him my uh my old car stereo huh. and he like without even blinking like that was my id and uh and without yes. even like hesitating he just threw it over his head like <laughs> out on, onto like a street where people could be walking, wow. you know, and, and uh, like it could have hit it. I mean, and he didn't like turn around or anything, 
you know, and so that that is remar- like remarkable. Like uh, I I noticed that. You know, <laughs> I know. I think that's one of the things that struck me so much in this book is that the the damage that physical reality takes that the the physical damage of cars being broken, mailboxes being broken, as you just described, like a car radio being tossed randomly into the street, that there is some expression of violence toward physical reality. And, and it kind of speaks to, you know, an ex- I don't know if it's an expression of rage or total apathy about any sort of matrix of meaning in the world. Uh, but it's, there's a, there's a recklessness to it that almost it, there is an outlaw quality, but I don't mean in a legal sense, but an outlaw quality against physical reality itself that I, I am a, a will that can damage things and I really don't care about the consequences. It's, it's really fascinating. And I like what you said about uh, that Hartford, you know, that it's kind of just uh, intrinsic to that city to invite people to kind of indulge in maybe their more dubious impulses. And I did find it interesting that you did give Hartford a, quite a bit of agency in, in responsible for the lives of people in Hartford. And I think that's probably in true of home in many ways, but it sounds like Hartford especially had a power over a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredible. Let me uh let's move on to another poem, shall we? Okay. Um let's go ahead and uh have you read uh the remarkable poem Pretty Boys and and this is just another gem. So uh please, whenever you're ready. Okay. Uh Pretty Boys. Grass owes a whole bunch of Coke dealers a whole bunch of money, so he's been locked up in a motel room with his mom who's only fifteen years older than him. My punching bag is in there, which is too bad, because tonight I really would like to punch something. His pit bull, Enzo, is there, too. I really like Enzo, and I put my fist in his open jaw. The bartender I work for is also named Enzo, but I don't get to put my fist in his mouth. He's half Greek and half Italian, which my roommate says is so Mediterranean that his nut must taste like olive oil. He is very good-looking, as is his best friend, and after Enzo got in a fight, they both checked, first thing, the perfection of his face. Sometimes when I'm at work, I hope Brass will walk out of the crowd in the purple club light. He doesn't come to places like this, and he can't come back to Hartford, but he was funny, and I remember some of the things he said, like, I'm going outside for a minute, where we watched him for an hour shaking in the cold by the high metal fence in our backyard, waiting there for something or someone who wasn't going to come. All right. Thanks, Sam. And there at the end of that poem is a, another instances of something or someone. And it's funny because I think in like a composition class, uh, one would, you know, kind of steer a writer away from that kind of vagueness. And yet you really court it here and it speaks to, um, at least to me, it, it speaks to kind of like actually whatever I could possibly name or possibly come up with is meaningless anyway, because if you take a look around, things are going downhill fast. And uh, I find that so <laughs> remarkable. They're like, hey, you know, uh, something, someplace, I don't know, who cares? Because have you taken a look around Hartford? And I can't help but laugh 
at this person at the end of the poem uh, when you write, you know, outside for a minute where we watched him for an hour shaking in the cold by the high metal fence in our backyard, waiting there for something or someone who wasn't going to come. And it's, it's amazing. It makes me think of when one is experiencing this kind of life, the odd things one witnesses. You see people and friends in surreal physical settings. You see behavior that is, that is just, I mean, no other word but strange. And there's a constant vulnerability to seeing humans in extremists. And I think that poem really, uh, points it out. And again, I think it reminds the reader that you're not here to dispel like some sort of wisdom to them. I never get a sense that the speaker is saying like, I went through this and now I've learned this and I'm going to tell you what I learned. It is just plainly telling, you know, the reader, like this is how it went down. And, uh, you know, you really carry that, uh, you really carry that through the whole book. And I was wondering if we can just turn a second for, away from the content and just think about the the poems in a physical sense that the poem, the book is made up of poems of, you know, basically uh, poems of intercepts and also this, uh, this remarkable kind of staggering of intentions that I think both forms you've really perfected and getting the momentum of the voice going and, and allowing you almost like, I feel like I imagined each poem uh, or each end of a line as a little turnstile, which, you know, kind of thrust the reader forward again. Um, can you talk about your choices with the, the form of these poems? They seem to really have worked well for your intentions of kind of a circular uh, storytelling. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went through well, the major, like the changes I made to the book. Anytime I, I, I went in to, to do a revision, I, I ended up changing the form. Um, that was just like a, a way to uh, to like crack it open. Um, and initially, I had written the poems all in ten line stanzas that were a bit wider, um, and so it would be like four ten line stanzas, or um, you know, between like between four and six for most of the poems. Yeah. And I think that um, I would get I would get a really like the response I wanted out of the poems when I read them. Um, yeah. But uh, in, in terms of like it making it as a book, I think that it was like some of that wasn't coming through um, in terms of how they were on the page. So I think that part of like what happened with the form I ended up with is that was like the the best way to to make like the voice be a voice that would pop up in someone's head reading it rather than yeah. just a voice that only I could do at a reading. Yeah, and these poems, I think the form too, it, it really causes, and I think this is one of the great successes of these poems, is that they caused in me, and I know other people who have read it, that a state change almost occurs that one would expect when they take a drug or, or drink, that there's this little micro state change that the language and the way it's flowing down the page uh, kind of induces in the reader. And it's uh, it's mildly pleasurable and mildly traumatizing, but I think you uh, <laughs> I think you definitely uh, nailed it with that. It was uh, it was it was really nice. Um, why don't we go ahead and look at another poem? Uh, 
fall is for football and winter is for hockey. And before you get started, I couldn't help but notice uh, that athletics seem to be kind of important to you and your life. And, and in your poetry, like you said, there is like minor league athletes seem to be milling around like uh, people who didn't make it professionally. So they were completely stripped of their identities uh, athletically. And so they seem to be wandering around Hartford. Can you tell me kind of your relationship, if we could back up for a second, to athletics? And, uh, you know, it seems to be a pleasure of yours, something you're interested in. Yeah, uh, well, in in high school, I, uh, all I wanted to do was play football, which I wasn't very good at. But I, I just wanted to be an offensive lineman. And and so that's what I did. Um, and I, I worked really hard uh, to, to be able to do that because um, I wasn't like quite big enough. And I, I didn't I didn't have like very good reaction time or anything. Um, any of the things you need to be good at sports. And so um, uh, that was what I did. And that was what my, my two best friends did too. Um, and uh, uh, one of them, my, my, my oldest friend, Spencer is a painter. Uh, he's actually in this poem. And then, um, and then our other best friend, uh, Chris was a, was like also a writer and he's really the person who, who like got me excited about writing at the end of, uh, at the end of high school when, um, all of a sudden like high school football is over and I no longer have to like lift weights all the time, <laughs> and go to these like practices that leave you so that you can't do anything. And I had all this energy and, um, and so, uh, that was like when I, when I started writing, um, but it was always in my in, in my past that I that I'd been a, a football player, um, and uh, and my dad and I always went to Hartford Whalers games. Um, I was mm-hmm. really into that uh, in high school until and that was when the, the Whalers were moved, um, and uh, and that's why we ended up with like a minor league team. Um, and then I think like for a while I probably I kind of fell out of like liking sports, and now I watch a lot of sports. Um, I guess I just I sort of like that that it's uh that it's something that's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is one way you can definitely uh describe it. And I think it really breaks the stereotype of like, you know, athletes in high school and uh because, you know, people think they're kind of just like one dimensional uh individuals who kind of just physically want to uh you know I don't know that their that their interior life is somehow one dimensional that it's all about sports. But I mean, what you're telling me is like, you know, like actually that's absolutely not true. That that there's artists, you know, playing football. Yeah. So that's really refreshing, I think, to uh, to people like myself who like athletics as well and and uh, but are de- you know dedicated to art as well. So go ahead and uh. uh Grace us with this poem, uh, Fall is for Football, Winter is for Hockey. Okay. The first time my parents caught me lying, it was summer, and I told them I was sleeping at Spencer's, when really I slept in a car parked in a field next to the leftovers of a bonfire and woke up to a bee flying into my forehead over and over. My mom called Spencer's house to tell me the girl I had a crush on was looking for me, and Spencer's mom said we had gone out and weren't coming back. By August, I was sick of lying, so I admitted I'd started drinking and then ran out of the house and hopped over a neighbor's fence. The neighbor came out, and I called her a cunt and said she'd call the police, but my mom drove up the driveway in her pickup, and I went home. 
My parents thought they'd keep me safe by sticking me in a private school, but Hartford works its way in no matter what you learn. And this winter, I've come to know the worst people the city has in it. Kenny went to wrestle Sully on my birthday and said I'd, and I said I'd help, but Dickie grabbed me and I ended up on my face with my shirt pulled over my head like a hockey jersey and my boss saying, don't feel bad, buddy. You just got pinned by one of the top fighters in the NHL. I never thought I'd know pro athletes, but I do, and they're just as bad as you'd expect them to be. What happens when you give a bipolar Canadian $2 million for a broken knee and tell him he can never skate again? A lot of windows get broken. He gives himself a black eye whenever anyone tells him he can't. He gets naked in the club and swirls his cock around over a crowd, and when he gets kicked out, he comes over to my house to break another window. He's not the only one. Everyone around here is a pro, even the bouncer who got picked up by the Jets for a week for a week of preseason and who went to my school and once in practice I blew him off the line, but he's a lot bigger now so I don't mention it and I don't invite him over either since I figured I already have enough at home to be afraid of. One morning I took a handful of who in our living room had gone to private school and all six of them raised their hands, but when I asked who was doing crystal meth right now, they were so excited by the question they set the crystal down so everyone could raise both hands. It's snowing tonight, and my roommate, who claims he could have played for the Whalers if they hadn't left town and he hadn't become a drug dealer, wakes me up and wants to borrow my car to make some money skinning it around town on the ice. It's easier to say yes, so I say it, though I know I'll spend the whole time he's gone watching for the car out the wind, out the window where the snow won't stop falling, as maybe it always seems it won't, though the way this winter's been going, there's reason to think the seasons are a little longer now than what they used to be. Thank you, Sam. That was really, really nice. Um, there was a couple moments that uh, really jumped out at me in this poem, uh, but one I want to read back to you and get your thoughts on is when you take this remarkable hand pull and I think it, this is such a great moment of camaraderie among people, uh, camaraderie over crystal meth, but camaraderie nevertheless. Um, so I took a handful of who in our living room had gone to private school, and that really jumped out at me because some of the people populated in these poems, uh, they seem to have been handed a script by either their parents or the culture that you are going to get this education and it's no choice of yours, and that for kids who have the opportunity to go to private school to be sitting around maybe a coffee table, you know, uh, throwing down crystal meth was such a juxtaposition that it made me wonder what is driving these individuals to engage in this behavior. And, and I was thinking, well, okay. I mean, there's the first explanation that it's just simply fun, you know, that this is a pleasurable activity. And yet I think in the poems, you, you take what, you know, would maybe seem pleasurable in the moment and just reading them in the poems seem very dark and, and certain, uh, certainly sad. Um, so I was wondering if you could kind of speak to what is driving these individuals to engage in this behavior. Is this simple as, uh, as having fun? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think about that group of people. Um, you know, I think that, uh, um, I think that a lot of those people ended up doing stuff like that when they were in high school. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, they they like lived at private schools, you know, um, which which can like lead to that um, when you have like a bunch of kids in, in a dorm when they're like 15 years old. Um, and so, to some extent, I think it, it was a kind of nostalgia, right? <laughs> um, you know, but I think it's also uh, I don't know. I had never seen that before. I, I'd never seen that since. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and um, it was it was like it was sort of strange to watch. I never like I, I never did it. <laughs> you know, I never did any crystal. Yeah. I don't know exactly <laughs> what it was like. But, like <laughs> there was a lot of like like just sitting there and like yeah. playing like pinochle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, but uh, and it wasn't like. It wasn't like they were like raging out of control or something, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, it kind of jumped out to me just because the book there these it's such a interesting and I don't want to go too deep into it, but I did notice like this interesting intersection between kind of like these people are like hardcore and like were born raised on the streets and they're just like following that you know that narrative of their lives. But then these other people from elsewhere are intersecting with them and them with the other kids. And it's just an interesting mix that the commonality that's bringing them is the behavior of of kind of indulging in in certain uh, kind of, I don't know, criminal behavior or whatever. And so that always uh, yeah. that always sort of struck me as as interesting. Yeah, um, you get like a big mix in, in Hartford because the the. the the neighborhoods are so small. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so like there, there is, there's every kind of neighborhood. There's everything you'd have in any other city, but, but it's only like two blocks, you know, and then you're in some other sort of space. So like you yeah. get from like the area where like Wallace Stevens lived, uh, and like where the governor's mansion is, it's like six blocks to a project, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so anyway, so I think like there is like there's a lot of uh, intersection across like class lines in Hartford because because it's just not that big. Yeah, and I think uh, whether consciously or not, I think you uh, you really captured this uh, this kind of aspect of that city that people from you know different backgrounds are like living on top of one another. It's really amazing. I want to ask you uh, about this book in the sense of it almost felt like you know that it was an act of like exorcism to get this book out of you. I was wondering if you could speak to like, what does it feel like to have it out of your system that you were working on it for so long? It seems like a great reconciliation of home. I was wondering how you feel about it now, kind of like removed from it. Do you feel a little lighter? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, I feel like, I feel, I feel like, okay, good. (laughs) You know, but it's there. And, uh, and, and a lot of like what I, like I, I, I you know, changed dramatically as a poet, uh, like a couple, several different ways mm-hmm. of writing like these poems, um, uh, in terms of like, uh, you know, writing, writing all like, I don't know, my, my next project, like my next book is, is called, uh, Tourism. And the mm-hmm. idea there is that like moving from section to section, you get like a completely sort of different kind of poem because I realized, um, after after I had written the Hartford book, when I started writing whatever poems I, I wrote next, I was kind of like uh, I sat down with uh, with Timothy Donnelly at Columbia and and I said like well how do these poems 
like, are they going to be able to fit together? And he was like, oh, well, I can always see your poems fitting together because you always sound like you. Right. And so then it, it was like this thing that for when I wrote the Hartford book was like, oh, I have this license. I can I, I can I can sound like me. I, I realized mm-hmm. like, oh, I I'm just going to sound like me so I can push myself in all kinds of different directions. Um, and so it was important for me to put out the Hartford book so that I could like uh, show people, you know, this is also the sort of poet that I am. Yeah, because it was very, not to interrupt, but it was very different in many ways from your first book. It was uh, kind of freaked some people out when they came across it. Yeah, there's a there's a great review of the Hartford book uh, on Cold Front where mm-hmm. uh, this uh, poet uh, or the reviewer um, uh, had liked Legacy a lot and then was like thrown off by what the Hartford book was like. And yeah. Sort of like tries to wrestle <laughs> with, the, with the two. And I think <laughs> it's really great. So you traumatized him essentially. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it produced like, it produced a <laughs> review that I, that I really like keep trying to tell people about. Uh, at some point he calls the Hartford book like vicarious ruin porn. <laughs> oh my is a really goodness. Great that is an amazing phrase. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that, we have this uh, this idea that, or there are people that have this idea that there's like two different kinds of poetry, and mm. one is like narrative, and one is um, I don't know experimental or whatever. Right. And I think that uh, that that like trying to stick to those poles is really um, is really what turns out like the most boring work. And so yes, I, I think that if if we look back at what's happened in in American poetry for the last century that like conflict between different aesthetics um has has like produced great work and so yes. um i i really want to like uh, allow these things to to like be in conflict in in my own work now um and i and i really wanted to put the, it felt good to put the Hartford book out to be like look uh here's this completely other kind of thing yeah you know? Yeah, I think that's an amazing point and that we when we think of the poetry manuscript and you hear about how uh, people organize them and tease out this poem, it doesn't belong because of this reason, um, that in a way, we kind of acknowledge that we have all these multiple selves within us and yet we demand in the manuscript total consistency of identity. And it sounds like what you're saying is like, why not have a volume of poems that represent kind of my my kind of busy interior? Why not kind of let those voices all come out? And I think that's a great point that that the manuscript is is uh, that it's seen as it has to be hyper consistent. Um, right. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, you know, it's kind of like. The manuscript has to look like this and it has to sound like this and all the poems have to be relate. And it sounds like uh, your next project might definitely be challenging that. Uh, Speaking of your next project, uh, I would love it if you could potentially read us uh, maybe one or two poems from stuff you're you're working on now. Yeah, sure. Um, So here I have uh, this is the the title poem um, of tourism. I think I think of what I want on mass as concrete thinks it wants the overpass. While wind and broken glass want heavy rains, Los Angeles I want across the plains. I hear myself collecting what I've caught like 
in the hospital and you've been shot. As time so clearly in the precinct falls, with phone calls mounting crisis on the walls, police are humming parts of primetime hooks. I want their fade-out lines and distant looks. I want this pickup idling for a beat, then turning, backing quickly up the street. I want the time it takes the sound to reach across from where the tires this moment screech. I think I often, eyes half-closed, will veer. I want inside the truck or walking near. I want the pillow I passed absently, not wind holding a bag against a tree. I think I'm in a transformation mood. I'm going to the diner for some food. I asked for coffee, but it's not been brought. I think I've seen this menu quite a lot. As children love to turn in spinning doors, I keep rerunning these formica floors, though each time through I see there less to take. I want the leaves from neighbors' trees to rake. The grass across the street is overgrown. This was a scene for several years I'd known, something I saw there right before it burst. It's darker later than it was at first. Sam, thanks so much. I mean, one thing that just jumps out immediately, of course, is is the rhymes, um, and they're punchy. Uh, and it reminds me of the con- you know, what we were just discussing. Uh, to the modern ear, the rhyme, you know, uh, is so noticeable and almost eccentric, and that the traditional forms are almost eccentric to us. Uh, can you speak about that for a sec? Yeah, I, 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 um, I really liked. Uh, um, there's, there's a poem in heroic couplets at the start of, uh, of a book of Glenn Maxwell's that came out like uh, I think it's called Hide Now, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and I was really like excited by. The idea that like you you could again uh, um, that you could do something that like you could write in in heroic couplets um, right and uh, and and I got like this idea that like if I uh, because in, in legacy and in and in, uh, in some of the poems in in tourism I, I'm sort of pushing the limit of like um, like what what's happening in terms of meaning in the poem and uh, and I realized like oh you know traditional form can be this thing uh that that like can you know the same poem without the rhymes um people are going to be baffled by but the rhyme sort of like it the rhyme and the and the meter um like bring you along like keep you keep you going with the poem even if like you don't know exactly what i'm talking about um yeah i think you're right they serve as tiny little anchors for the reader um and i think they allow the reader to uh, instead of thinking about uh, how you're writing it, I think it, I think the form, those traditional forms, sometimes allow the reader to listen to what you're saying instead of thinking about how you're saying it. Um, yeah, and can you imagine a manuscript with a book of uh, poems in which there are traditional forms next to, say, a procedural poem? Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, that's a uh... Uh, that's part of like, what happens. <laughs> um, I mean, I also, exactly I have, what you're trying to advocate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there there are uh, there are a couple. Um, there there are two long poems in the book that uh, that I wrote with no punctuation and with just a syllabic pattern, and that um, that was like another way that I was using form to kind of like let's see, I'll just put a stream of something into like this shape and and then I'll play with it um and that'll 
that'll give like a way to to go at it. I mean, it's interesting. I, I was I was meeting with a student uh, yesterday, and I was telling him that like I, I felt like I could see like the things in his poems really clearly, um, but more so than I had before. And uh, and then after like after we had talked about them for a while, he told me that like he had started paying attention to making sure there were like four stressed yes. uh, syllables in each line. And I was like, Oh, so that's why, that's why I can see what's happening. <laughs> I know? think, yeah, I think talking about the musical line, yeah, that it does remarkable things to the language. And, uh, you know, those debates rage on about whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever camps are fighting about it. Um, but I think in many poets experiences, those, those guardrails and those musical guardrails uh, really start creating a lot of sparks in language. And like you said, kind of reside in the reader's mind in a special way that connects them to the language. Uh, before uh, we get out of here, uh, I would love it if you could read uh, one more poem. Yeah, sure. Um, so this, this is a, a very different poem from that same book. It's called mm-hmm. Often Common, Some, and Free. Dear, neither of us has any money. Let's say we leave that field open, as in we don't complete the form. I see nothing here says it is required. Maybe this is the other kind of field, grass, etc. That makes sense to me. Dear, neither of us has any money. Let's say there's an Adirondack chair, the affordable plastic kind. Maybe those are rubber. Maybe I don't know what rubber is me. Forget it. We know the park is free. Rather, further, also trees. There's a soft line of them, soft as in thin and irregular. The trees themselves are full. Their shadows cross our blanket, as in, let's say we have a blanket, which we move where the sun's got the same feel to it. Still, you instruct me, be still. Dear today, dear yesterday. What a lot of places I moved myself around then. Again, sunny afternoons, my father sits in a plastic Adirondack chair with his fingers folded and his shirt open. No one listens. He doesn't speak. It's nice he thinks of it as a privilege, but nicer still that he does it. Again, what did I say? The field is open, as in incomplete. The grass, I don't have a word for, except, rather, excuse me, Please, please, as in this afternoon, stay in the park with me. Sam, that was really, really gorgeous. What jumped out at me was the figure of the father with the shirt undone. It, it had a uncomfortable cinematic quality to it. Um, Sam, that wraps up our time together. It has been an absolute pleasure and treat to talk to you. Uh, the poems are amazing. And... Please come back when your next uh, when your next book is out. All right, great, thanks. It's been fun. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Bye.